They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. And we are back with an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I remain Louis Vertel. And we are joined by a special guest this week, returnee Travel Anderson. Hi, thanks for having me. Glad to be back as always. Is this your third, fourth time back? Oh, I don't remember. You know, it's been a minute. <laughs> I have bad memory. You were here at some point. Yes, yeah. <laughs> they know me. Uh, it's fine. They do. How are you doing over at What A Day? It's great. Um, we don't wake up this early in the morning for, for recordings, uh, but I love it. Shout out to Gideon and Priyanka and Josie. We're doing it. I forget that we are still the quote-unquote early podcast. We're like lighthouse keepers over here or something. <laughs> well, we pull up the graveyard shift. You know, we're out late. I think at one point we used to record Keep It in the evening. We did a couple of them. I still get all my news from Inside Edition, so this entire process <laughs> is unfamiliar to me. Deborah Norville, we love you. Why was I just thinking about her? Oh, Katie Couric wrote about her in her memoir. That's going to be a good one anyway. Something I'm excited about for the future. Katie Couric is on a, she's on a tear. Who, who isn't she talking about in this memoir? <laughs> no, I like her very casual kind of cat-eyed candor. Just, <laughs> I'm going to rip everybody apart. <laughs> yeah. um, so I did not get to see um, No Time to Die yet, Lewis, but you said you had thoughts. Oh, yes. Well, first of all, I saw it extremely late last night. So I I look like one of those Garfield comics where he's sleep deprived, like that level of baggy eyed, whatever. I was debating doing that. I landed yeah. back in L.A. and I was like, do I see this 10 o'clock showing of this film? And then I saw the runtime and I said, absolutely. Fucking <laughs> and by the way, if you went to see it at like an AMC, you then get a half hour of previews beforehand so you're really there extra late as i was we are going um, london in the u.s i don't know if like you've seen like a movie in the uk but i just went to see widows and there was an mm -hmm. hour of commercials before trailers <laughs> oh my god what that's so the fort like a newsreel they're, footage they're and stuff? Out of Jesus fucking, Christ. they're out of fucking control so i think that's where <laughs> yeah. amc is heading Got it. Got it. Um, I will say this. Uh, I thought it was an okay movie. I'm actually surprised anecdotally to hear my friends really love it. To me, I thought they forgot to make James Bond interesting. They just assume he's interesting. The stunts look great. Actually, all the women in it, I think, rule. And I underestimated what a big part Leah Seydoux would have in the movie. She's obviously a big part of Spectre. Loved her and blue is the warmest color. I think part of that thing about him being interesting is what is a holdover even from the last one. Mm. All these movies, as opposed to the other Bonds, are really doing like a, this is a continuation. And so yeah. they're not really 
introduced they haven't really been introducing him in a new interesting way each film it's sort of like well you saw the other ones right so yeah. you know what he's like lewis i have a question though is it uh-huh. is it worth the runtime though i will say i i mean i'm somebody who absolutely needs to be on some sort of medication for paying attention to things and i will say for a two hour and 40 minute movie I wasn't unentertained, didn't want to fall asleep or anything. So for me to say that, I think most people would find it exceptionally entertaining, I mm. think. Um, but my God, is that long? You're right. I mean, you know, if, if, if you have important quilting or something to do, maybe do that instead. I don't know. <laughs> but um, I, I will say, like, I, I think what disappointed me most is, like, the villain is extremely typical. Uh, as uh, Rami Malek plays him, and in the first scene he appears, I was actually sort of digging it, and we're sort of getting over this hump of Rami Malek's past few performances we weren't such a big fan of here. Maybe he was getting back into the groove, and then eventually he becomes one of these villains who's like, do you admire my topiary? You know, just like all the other fucking Bond, Bond villains. So I think that was a little bit cliche, too. It was, it, it was, it was too familiar in certain ways to me, other than Ana de Armas' character... The good sis. Pretty good. This is part of the app. Yeah, this is part of her upswing. Okay. I'm ready for everyone else to start standing on a Dharmas because all I needed was knives out. <laughs> and her daily and her and her um breakfast walks with Ben Affleck. Right, which was I believe we consumed that content four times a day for a while during the pandemic. So, so much that she like has a new man, I think, and they are you never see her. <laughs> wow what happened I, I'm just like I'm just, I guess she was like you know what I did it once I don't need to be in a celebrity relationship anymore mm. speaking of celebrity relationships we really don't think about Daniel Craig and Rachel Vice enough I mean is there fanfic about these people I want to know more do you really though I would love to I mean they're oh, just so wait, no, no 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 what was wait, wait, we have to stop <gasps> now Rachel Rachel, <laughs> Rachel Vice is the allure of the 2020s for me <laughs> she's, okay. she's a queen i i feel like the only thing that they do as a couple is that he um he loves to emerge from the ocean like he's bond like it's <laughs> mm-hmm. like, yes. like like there's always paparazzi photos of him in a speedo emerging from the ocean and i think that's just the one thing he picked up on from playing bond that he does now <laughs> during the off season if you're going to pick up on anything, I'm going to recommend that, though, because he does that well while remaining utterly stone faced. He's sort of like his he, he did that recent GQ spread. And I would describe Daniel Craig's hotness as um like vintage Clint Eastwood with like a moisturizer plan. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it, it shouldn't work. He, sh- he should look dehydrated. Yeah. And yet he doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, come out more. I would love to just find out where they're eating at. Right. Come on, come on, Dumois. Focus on real celebrities like Daniel Craig yeah, no and Rachel Weisz. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Travel, I'm sorry you had to come here this week for um. It's all right. I, I agree, for, for, really. For, for for this topic, uh, but Dave Chappelle does have a new special. Yes, and he the does. Girls are, and the girls are talking. Aren't they always talking? <laughs> I like how the word special sounds so shady when you say it under certain contexts. So here he is with his special. 
<laughs> special it is. Yeah. Uh, we also um, are going to talk about the world of celebrity podcasts because that is also where the girls are talking every day. Every day. Arguably too long. Entirely uh, too argu- long. Arguably many more than you would ever imagine. <laughs> it's like, where's Jody Sweeten's podcast? Okay, because I'm sure it's somewhere. <laughs> um, and then also this episode, um, Lewis and I have a wonderful conversation with um, Carrie Brownstein. Jesus, is she fab. She came on the mic and we were like, blown back you know marty and back to the future when he he hit turns on the amplifier and then flies back into the wall that was us with her just speaking <laughs> uh of course she is here to discuss the nowhere in uh her new half documentary scripted with saint vincent there's there's, there's many ways to describe this movie i'm gonna let lewis do it yeah it's bizarre but also what's weird is it's kind of like portlandia and that you watch it and you think well, Carrie Brownstein's not like a comic. She's like a, a a rock star. What's she doing in this context? And then you watch and realize, oh, no, wait, you're naturally funny, too. But that's not your job. I'm upset. And St. Vincent gets to be funny in this, too. And then it's also serious. And then it's also real. Then it's also not real. So anyway, lots of sublimating of genres going on here. Yeah. So we get into that. We get into Slater Kenny. We get into music. It's a good combo. Uh, so we will be right back with more Keep It. Philip Picardi's podcast, Unholier Than Now, is back. Season two is all about the wisdom of everyday people falling down, getting up, and trying new things as they navigate re-entry into a newish world. Catch up on the first episode with Samita Mukhopadhyay, former editor of Teen Vogue, as she and Phil dive deep into the lessons of grief and how to rebuild relationships over time. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Last week, Dave Chappelle released his sixth Netflix special, The Closer, which did not feature Kira Sedgwick. So I, she couldn't I'm have come out one mad. time. I'm already yeah. mad. <laughs> uh, the Closer is coming. The Closer is coming to Netflix are words that should excite me. And yet it was deception. <laughs> so you seem really broken up about it uh you know um i believe this is the last of his 20 million dollar deal with netflix uh which is good because after doubling down on anti-lgbtq rhetoric particularly against the trans community a lot of people would like him to shut up please so I I will actually say that it took me a while to get through this because the first time I tried to watch it was falling asleep. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Because it wasn't funny or because you were just tired? I, I, both, but there were, I was confused by some reviews that said that it was funny before it delved into the, the end, which they think that like, um, ruined it and ruined his like netflix special legacy and i was angry from the jump because i thought it was unfunny from the beginning well it's also just a whole lot of fixating on stuff i wish he would one move past and also he promises he's going to move past it and then we're just in it the entire special so Mm -hmm. 
Again, you promised something. First Kira Sedgwick, now this. And I'm, <laughs> I'm left wanting both times. Uh, yeah. I think it's, listen, the last um, special, 846, you know, which was about um, police violence against uh, black people. Um, that one at least felt like um, there's a reason for him to just, you know, like strip away. I'm doing a comedy special and have it be more like he was having a conversation um and i you know i remember finding that one moving even the one right before that um where i feel like he was first like getting loose with the trans stuff um (laughs) that one at least seemed like there was some jokes up front i feel like i remember on this show but you know we've been doing this for too many damn episodes um i think i at least remember being like part of this was funny you know um I just found none in it this time. It was it was like he was up there pontificating. It was mm. like he was up there with thoughts. Um, like he has real, really no interest in doing stand-up comedy anymore, but he has things to say. And where else is he going to say it besides in one of these specials, you know? It's like, it seems like he wants to be writing books or like having a, a podcast where he's just talking about this shit. And I mean... I don't know, maybe the next step is like a spinoff of the Joe Rogan experience. (laughs) (laughs) Here's the thing. I so I did not watch the special uh, Mm -hmm. because I do not want to subject myself to all of that. I've seen all of the others. Um, I actually was at his his comeback his initial comeback. Mm. Um, I was working at the LA Times at the time and was sent to cover it. And that's when he first started making these anti-trans, you know, type of jokes uh, in, a, in a small way. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know. I just feel like Dave Chappelle doesn't have the range to be having conversations about LGBTQ identity at all. Um, and based on my understanding of this special in particular, you know, Oh, he does this thing that like cishet black men do where they feel like they are the most oppressed. Right. Mm-hmm. When in reality, if we were going to play the oppression Olympics, they would lose by a landslide. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just like Jesse Martin when he ran for president. <laughs> <laughs> and it just it's just I think it's it's one of those things <laughs> it's one of those things where Dave Chappelle is tiring and, and exhausting to me, as as is Kevin Hart, as is all these other comedians who want to rail against cancel culture, even though they actually haven't been canceled. Um it's just mm. I'm just over it. He seems tired. He seems tired in the beginning of the special, and it's still it, it's it's still nonsensical rhetoric to me because it ends with, you know, like, um, you know, stop punching down on us, us. There's all these years, all these specials, and you cannot acknowledge the fact that black queer people exist, black right. trans people exist. It's like the entire community is white to him. And I, I will say that, like, I know that he has talked about his trans friend um, who died before of suicide. Uh, Daphne Dorman um, I did not know she was white until this special I had never seen a photo of her um, and now it makes sense it makes all of the sense <laughs> now, it, no now it makes sense I, I, was, I was just shocked I was like 
oh, a friend that he has, you know, I thought it was like maybe like a black trans woman, like, you know, from, uh, you know, someone he's known um, since his youth or something. I didn't know, really like know the depths of the relationship. I didn't care to dig into it. Um, but I was like, how are you acting like just no black queer people exist? I'm like, oh, this woman is white. But if you are a white trans woman who has the um, chance to um, be friends with Dave Chappelle, meaning you're running in sort of the same circle, like I'm not going to assume that you know what you're talking about either. It's giving Caitlin, you know? <laughs> I'm just like, if you are going to be a person who's out there as like the defender uh, or the person he's using um, to um, defend his jokes, then like, you know, you, you, you were clearly in some different sort of like, you know, social sphere where this shit doesn't matter to you. At some point, he says something like, I, I know trans people make up terms to win arguments in, online. I'm like, dude, you're literally making up trans boogeymen to make any of this make sense. The amount, like he's, he's talking about like, like they, they bother you in, in, in your Twitter mentions or they're like confronting you with this. But it's like he, he keeps characterizing all trans people. And I guess like younger and younger LGBT people as nags. It's just it's like you can keep pretending you're humanizing everybody by talk, by by trying to talk about LGBT issues. But literally, you can't even characterize them once fairly. You know, he it's like he's the one who's not bothered and everybody else is bothered, you know, which goes back to what Travel just said about, like, the cancel culture thing. It's like everybody else is histrionic and I'm, you know, over here trying to keep my cool. It's just super boring. And also, does he even have a Twitter account? I don't know who's like who's, who's finding him online who's through his, his publicist mentions? or whatever. Who's I don't know. His mentions? You don't right. have mentions. <laughs> but it's like any at, at this point, it's like anybody who would care to want to talk about this as a serious issue is not coming to the special for like a constructive argument. They want to find Dave Chappelle funny first, and then any any residual intelligence in the conversation they're just going to chalk up to his genius. It's all about like loving him ultimately, and I just find it super tedious and super like who comes out of this thinking I really learned something. And I really do think he thinks he's here to be didactic and instructive. Mm. You know, I also think that it's, it's this hunt that um, comedians have for the, you know, the like last great joke, um, you know, as uh, I think Ray Sani has called it, um, the last great joke, which is um, the trans joke. You know, it's like it's like we know comedians love to, you know, sort of like push the envelope, certain ones. Uh, and what's the last thing that they can sort of like make fun of to find like a good joke? Um, and it's making fun of trans people. You know, they're like trying to find one that like pops, that is funny. Um, and no one is doing it. I don't know. I just feel like I feel like we... We all love, or all of y'all love Dave Chappelle because of the Chappelle show. We thought that he... Ooh, all of y'all. All of y'all. <laughs> because... <laughs> not Chappelle. Because <laughs> we all thought, y'all thought that he was speaking to, you know, the lived experiences of Black people and he was doing it in a way that, like, no one else was doing it on TV at that time. Um, mm -hmm. and, and maybe that's true, right? 
But like he just doesn't have the range to have this convert. Like in the special, I was reading um, Eric Deggan's uh, review over at NPR, and he says in the special that Dave Chappelle makes this joke comparing like you know but black rights to like the gay rights movement, and says that like if slaves were oiled up and had on booty shorts that you know maybe they would have been freed a hundred years earlier or whatever the case may be right which one the idea that there weren't queer people who were also enslaved is just like a historical first and foremost mm. um, right second secondly it it borrows on this like continual you know divisiveness that LGBTQ people are always pitted against Black folks, and it ignores, as I think you said, uh, Ira, that like I exist and that Ira exists mm-hmm. at the intersection of Blackness and queerness. And for me, as a mm-hmm. non-binary trans person, um, and Dave Chappelle, time and time again, has shown us that he's not interested in that intersection and acknowledging that intersection. The um, silliness. It, it's tricks. It's Fruit Loops. It's it's also it, it's also just so weird when Black people don't get it because it is it, it's really the, the, the simplest binary. Black and white. When you talk about queer people like pretending that they weren't enslaved, mm-hmm. that also ignores the fact that there weren't white queer people who were enslaving black queer people you know it's like mm-hmm. it, it's the it doesn't matter if you're queer or not it matters whether you were black or white you know and so there also is this this they can acknowledge the fact that you know like whiteness you know like permeates the media and you know like you and that is how you know black people other races are subjugated or you know are uh racially stereotyped etc but can't acknowledge the fact that maybe the most visible queer people you see in the media them being white is because of whiteness, not the fact that all queer people are white, you know? Right. Very that. And then I also think about the ways in which, you know, so much of Dave Chappelle's thing is about trying to challenge audiences, right? And so he thinks he's so progressive. He thinks it's like, a you know, that whole equal opportunity offender thing. Um, but one, I think comedy has changed to where like, that's at least not funny to me. Um, and I'm sure there are millions of people who are out there who it is funny too. Um, and some of them can be queer and trans as well, right? Because we are not a monolith either. Um, but the fact of the matter is like, we don't, as, as trans people, we're not waking up thinking about no damn Dave Chappelle. And so why the hell do we factor <laughs> in so much to his comedy of late? I just don't understand. Like, as, as well, a black man, he's Netflix. got... Well, it's because of Netflix. Made. It's because it's global. <laughs> you know, because the, the girls are releasing the specials. Um, the girls at Netflix. The Netflix girls. Um, S- Sally, Sally, and um, Ted Sarandos. Uh, <laughs> Something that kind of blew my mind immediately after this was posted, and obviously Dave Chappelle has like tons and tons of defenders. Like, there's no such thing as this uh, Chappelle special coming out, and like not all of his like very serious fans coming to his um, defense. But like, I'm just reminded of the Nanette conversation about how it wasn't stand up because she wasn't joking the entire time or, you know, it was it was a one woman special, technically not stand up. And it's like, meanwhile, then these people are coming here to defend this quote unquote comedy, which at one point he just calls himself a turf. Like so like that's now that's stand up to you. Mm -hmm. It's like 
Why are we receiving serious messages from only men? Why are you know, cis men? You know, why can't you take all comedy voices similarly seriously? And that's when it comes down to it's like men worshiping another man and whatever he says is fucking true to them. That's how it felt to me. Mm. And, you know, speaking of uh, Miss Netflix, they are in the news also because um, a trans employee was suspended after tweeting about Dave Chappelle. But, you know, to get into nuance, you know, they're, they're, they're also alleged that they crashed a meeting on Zoom that was for executives. Two other employees were fired for getting into you know, a meeting that higher ups were having on Zoom. And you can do that on Zoom. I mean, if you got the link. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> if you got the link, you can jump into anything. You'll be let in, um, you know, and I, I mean, there's there's a lot going on here. But just the fact that, you know, you have um, employees uh, even feeling like they need to speak out against Netflix. And Ted Sarandos's uh, statement was wasn't giving to me you know it wasn't giving <laughs> it was like you know we don't think that this sponsors hate etc which is which is foolishness um because um specific references in disclosure explain why dave Chappelle's special can cause violence towards uh black queer people especially black trans women so uh maybe ted missed that one well, it's interesting you say that because in the little memo that he wrote to the staff, uh, I think The Verge published it, he he cites Disclosure being on the platform as an example of Netflix supporting, platforming, you know, trans LGBTQ work. But I don't see how you watch Disclosure and then also believe that these quote unquote jokes that Dave Chappelle is putting forth um, aren't going to materially lead to the types of violence that in particular Black trans folk experience, right? Because those are the types of things that we know that folks who have committed violent acts against trans people say, right, to invalidate Mm. our humanity and justify, you know, their violence, right? And so it just seems... I. Netflix wants to have its cake and eat it too, right? They made it clear that they're not taking this special down because Dave Chappelle's specials do very well for that platform. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's watching it, right? He's like, we gonna get our money's worth out of Mr. Chappelle because we gave him $20 million, Mm. right? But it definitely leads to the same violence. And, and, And also, one thing that Dave Chappelle just does not notice notice or recognize is that you know the people in the trans community who get the who bear the brunt of the violence that the trans community faces are black folks black trans women and black femmes right um and the perpetrators of that violence are more often than not black cishet men like dave chappelle right and so i think ignoring that type of context, it allows you to get up on stage and say that, like, you know, you punching, punching down, punching up at everybody around you. But who's actually getting punched, right? Who's actually Mm -hmm. getting killed, right? And it's folks who move through the world like me, as opposed to folks who move through the world, you know, like him, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's just like, we just need more nuance in these conversations, ultimately. And he just does not have to How are you punching down at 
the baby. You know, well, I know <laughs> technically yes because most people are taller than him. But uh, you can't punch down at a billionaire celebrity rapper. You know, right? You're not punching down at him. And if 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 he's losing shit, like uh, endorsements of things, and that he did that himself. That part. I uh, w- I was also blown away that he went to like the Mike Pence joke area too. Like, God save me from 2017. Please, <laughs> please stop. Please, I don't want to hear it ever again. <laughs> I was like, I also, you mentioned we were um, safe. I thought I we were know. safe. Why am I still hearing Mike Pence's name outside of a uh, um, January 6th commission report? <laughs> you uh, you also brought up disclosure after watching the special. I mean, how annoying is it to even have to see all those people from that movie have to talk about this special? It's like organ, like because he has this special. Now this entire conversation about them is oriented around mm-hmm. him. It just found found it so annoying. Like like and any outsider would find that annoying that mm-hmm. he would like kind of have the gall to make. To, to be the center, the hub of that. Really mm-hmm. annoying. And the comparison of it to other projects on Netflix that, you know, cause some controversy like Cuties or 13 Reasons Why, uh, I think is, um, you know, a false equivalency. Mm-hmm. I know it. They know it. But, you know, it's going to take someone with uh, a bit more um, weight to discuss um this at a higher level at netflix you know i just get my checks <laughs> guys put on cats cops and stuff by paula poundstone the greatest stand-up hour ever released what? paula come back wait wait don't tell me what <laughs> that's it's my favorite stand-up hour ever you've never seen it <laughs> the year was 1990 mm, my favorite stand-up is um the snippets before each episode of Seinfeld. Oh, yeah. He nailed it every time. <laughs> was that the- was routinely the worst part of the episode. Was it not? Yeah, yeah. It, it was. It was. That was where all the what's the deal jokes would be. And it would sort of be like in a, pu- a punchline, audience laughs, and then cut back to him smirking. By the way, Seinfeld, not my brand usually. Do you know what I have weirdly been sucked into? Jason Alexander interviews. Jason Alexander, super brilliant. I mean, one of those people who remembers everything, too. Look up his uh, Television Academy interviews. Very informative. I like learned something about how you film a sitcom and stuff. I, I was shocked. I know. I really like Jason Alexander. He's, I think he is the one who... Um, he's, he's the one from Seinfeld who has the most failed TV shows, right? Oh. He certainly has a number. Yeah. He's like... It, it really... It really uh, did it really... Did he have a one that was longer running? After that, he certainly had Bob Patterson, which lasted, you know, not as long as Seinfeld. You know, uh, I would I would maybe posit that with I feel like he's the one with the, more of the film career. Well, you- we enjoyed him in Pretty Woman, certainly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> OK, first of all, Hutchback of Notre Dame. Okay, Dunstan checks in. All right, oh my, the, the best Faye Dunaway okay. movie. Oh my God, Cinderella. Gosh. Yes, the black one. Yes, yes. Come on, come on. And he was in some episodes of Monk, which isn't a film, but I just love talking about Monk. I never get the chance to anymore. Congrats. Uh, all right, when we are back, Lewis and I get into it with Carrie Brownstein, but there is more. Coming up with Travel after that. Keep It is brought to you by 
barefoot dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see footprints in the sand, that was when I carried you in my barefoot dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Our guest today is what you would call a multi-hyphenate, I suppose, a musician, writer, actress, comedian, and director. You may know her from Slater Kinney or the feminist bookstore owner in Portlandia, and she is currently the writer and star of The Nowhere Inn with her friend, St. Vincent. Please welcome Carrie Bradstein. Hello. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. I'm thrilled to have you. I was just thinking about this movie. How annoying is this movie to describe to people? I was, I, like it's, you could be like, oh, it's a mockumentary, but it's like three other movies inside it too. So I'm wondering if this promotional tour is among the most stressful things you've ever done. It's a little stressful. We should have thought of that when we were making the film. We should have um, reduced the elements and the, you know, the kind of um, hybridity by, by 90%. So we could have just said, it's a rom-com. <laughs> Lots of hijinks. I don't know. Um, Dermot Mulroney dates you both. Yeah, whatever. Uh, yes. My dream. Dermot Mulroney and Dylan McDermott. Mm, for, yes, who right. I, who's, who I conflate by name alone. Yes, yeah. you know. I believe that's their fault. Dylan yeah. is actually my favorite um, TV actor, I think. Dylan is. So I will always remember him. I think it's just from growing up watching wow. The Practice. Oh, the right. practice. Yeah. I think yeah. I also like him from the first season of American Horror Story. Yes. Yes. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, this is a podcast about Dylan McDermott. <laughs> <laughs> no, wait, but really, did you know that Dylan McDermott, I think I'm right about this, is the adopted son of Eve Ensler, who wrote the vagina monologues? No. Wait, like, an, isn't that crazy? Like, yes, as he was ch- adopted as a teenager. Yes. I love this. This a deep cut and I think a tangent that I mean willing to go down but that's an amazing fact and amazing that it was when he was a teenager not as a child 
I mean, like yeah, not his as dad a like sort of dating her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. okay, okay, gotcha. I thought you just meant like mm-hmm. fresh from the orphanage, like Eve Ensler just went in, or like okay, <laughs> that makes more sense. Yeah. That makes more sense. Okay. Okay. Now, his, Foundling his, Dylan McDermott. His father's yes, right. third wife was Eve Ensler. Did you right. just yes. look that up? Oh, I okay, did. I was I like. Did. <laughs> Yeah, I did. We have we have like a bunch of pop culture in our brains, but sometimes it does fail us. So well, got to go to I, Wikipedia very quickly. I think if you want me to do a bring this full circle, we could say this. The difficulty we've been having describing Dylan McDermott is similar to the difficulty I've been having <laughs> describing the nowhere in. Uh, speaking of your describing of the movie, though. Uh, you did an interview with The Observer, and one of the influences you listed for this movie completely surprised me. But then I saw the movie, and I was like, I think I get it. Uh, Phantom of the Paradise, an amazing Brian De Palma film, which I feel like so few people have seen. What do you love about that movie, and how did it inspire you in the Nowhere Inn? Well... There's a lot of things I love about that movie, just starting with how bonkers it is. Like it just (laughs) it's a real um, I that that whole genre. I don't even know what that genre is. It's like, you know, part musical, part horror fantasy. Mm -hmm. Um, But I just I love that kind of weird risk taking that seemed available in the 1970s, like to just do something that did sort of defy um, categorization and expectations and just kind of the meshing of a genre, you know, and also just throwing in like clear loves of like De Palma, like I love music. I love like it just I don't mm-hmm. know. I, I I just kind of liked the, the freedom that the movie seemed to embrace in terms of like not adhering to um, like structural norms and also just <laughs> some weird weird camera moves and i don't know just the whole thing is is such a um bananas uh freak show that i just i really loved it but it also like the character is kind of classically like sad and sort of lonely like at the core of it is is a you know a very traditional story about a lonely person (laughs) seeking connection i was inspired by it by just that kind of elasticity of um i don't know like norms and just kind of taking uh the the script and the the shooting style and just being like how can we sort of push this and and not make it something that people expect i guess that was that was the main influence was just nothing um just kind of trying to move away from like traditional documentaries and i love like when films like that or i'm not there or 24 hour party people sort of just approach music mm. with this kind of like 360 degrees like we're never going to come at this straight on. So let's just kind of keep circling around it. And every time it goes around, you, you kind of catch something different. You're on this like amusement ride. That's like a little bit dizzying. And to me, that's kind of the experience of music, you know, as a fan of it, you just like, every time you approach a song, it's, it's subjective. It's where you're at emotionally. And like, it, it comes in like colors and waves and it's just hard to come at music with a linear story to me. Something I also thought was interesting in hearing you talk about this was you mentioned how often music documentaries can be authentic and then also they conceal a lot or, and, and 
I take that to mean also that a lot of them are fan service as opposed to being a documentary about the subject. And I was wondering, do you like music documentaries in general or do you find yourself annoyed at what they're actually setting out to do? No, I love I mean, I love them. I love even the ones that where you the contrivance is so clear. You can just, you know, feel like the, the amount of control that the artist had over it. Just like um, I. There is a scene in the um, Lady Gaga documentary that is absolutely amazing. Where have you guys seen that one? You know where yeah. she uh, five for two. Yeah, yeah. five mm-hmm. for two. You know where she she goes to her um, is it her grandmother's house? Then she brings up the her dead aunt who she named the album after Joanne, right? Mm-hmm. And right, he's trying to get her. You know, it's a very staged moment, and she's trying to get her grandmother kind of to cry over it. And I think just they're coming at it from such disparate experiences, and you can just really see in that moment like two kind of competing interests. You know, like one is a, a woman who's like been grieving this probably you know since the day it happened, and who knows where she's at emotionally. And then you know, Gaga's there to just sort of like bring it home for the film. And you just, in that moment, it's just this sort of strange truth of just like, you can't, you know what I mean? Like artists are such vultures, you know, and she's clear. And that that's sort of the, that's the truth that's revealed in that moment. You know, mm. there's a lot going on there. So I, even the ones that feel contrived or, you know, all of a sudden in that movie, she's just sitting there with her assistants when she takes her shirt off. I'm like, Oh mm. my God, I love that boldness. Um, I, I, I like moments like that. And I, I don't judge, like, I'm like, okay, that's, that's great. That's, you know, that's what she wanted to show. Like, but so I can enjoy them for, the sort of ridiculousness and the transparency. And I feel like they're smart enough to know that like their, their fans, they, they know it's been puppeteered, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I also love like a great, you know, like the Nina Simone documentary, which is actually amazing or the muscle shoals documentary, like, mm-hmm. you know, and music films like rock and roll circus. So I, I feel like as I feel y- you guys are both good at this, like the high and the low to me, they're both beautiful. Like, yeah, I can't discount either. The one recent one I really loved was the David Foster documentary, which is sort of like... I got to see that. You watch it and you are like, this man is an asshole and everyone (laughs) hates him. But the theme of it is, but he's just so fucking good at his job. (laughs) So we love love him. So we keep going back and working with him. Um, I like that idea of like the artist is the vulture and even this concept of like when we're watching things like that, you get to a point where the audience knows what they are getting. They know the puppets and the strings. I mean, I explained this to Lewis, who's not much of a reality TV person, but I am. And I find that that is sort of the thrill of watching even like a Real Housewives moment for me, because you have a person who's decided that they're going to be on TV and they need to talk with their family and show you their history to the audience. But when you have someone sit down and talk about you know, remember when you abandoned me as a kid uh, when I was three, you've already had this conversation with your mother, but now you need to dredge it up again for the audience. Uh, And I find it so interesting as artists in general, you know, it's constantly you are revisiting things from your past and deciding what you're going to give to your audience and sort of how emotional you're going to be. Have you found that, um, you've had like a push and pull with that, you know, since like making albums, you know, since the nineties. Yeah. But I feel like there's almost a safety 
in having started, I think, before this era of where there was a currency created out of likability and relatability, mm-hmm. like, you know, the, the 90s, just any pre-internet era was was a different time where mystery was still kind of part of the equation and um, the kind of the process of discovery in terms of like what you were looking for about an artist was like that journey was a lot more sort of personal and, and arduous, you know, whether it was like finding magazines or, you know, like trying to just, yeah, it was a whole, a whole different process. So I feel a little lucky in that I, you know, I didn't enter the the sort of public sphere sort of having to like be fully formed, you know, mm-hmm. and um, I can kind of straddle that line a little bit. I definitely kind of appreciate privacy and i think i can only ever be myself i guess i think i missed the opportunity to sort of come in fully like with the persona i just the 90s were so earnest in some ways you know like even the 90s are kind of having a comeback and you think of you know like britney or you think of all these like people from the 90s and like they just were out there you know like just with all their contradictions and and mess and now there's sort of a reckoning about it but but that's just what you did. There was, there was, there was no reason, there was no medium through which you could kind of like filter yourself literally or figuratively. Right. Um, It's interesting what you say about relatability now, because I don't think relatability would bother me as much if everybody didn't decide to do it the same way, which is the, it feels like you're seeing the same kind of self-deprecation again and again, or the same kind of, um, or faux modesty or I don't know, like this, the same kind of Instagramming and tweeting. And do you, do you find yourself frustrated at how musicians uh, relate to their fans nowadays? Does that feel like, does that make you want to get away from the internet altogether? I mean, it's a tricky question because it's like, I don't want to get away from fans. you know? I mean, that's that. Yeah. Like I, I like, that there's a shortcut to communication and connection. Um, But I do think that sort of like parasocial kind of like false intimacy can definitely exist and be, and be sort of harmful, but that's not just between fans and, you know, performers. I mean, just think of the false intimacies we create all the time. I mean, sometimes I think I could just replace the person I text in the morning with almost anyone, like if you just send out, like all you need is, you know, or like when you get on a plane and you're like about to fly, I mean, you know, as long as you, that, that recipient could be any number of people, but it's just like the, (laughs) the the action of sending it. Like, I don't know. So there's, there's a lot to like navigate right now, but I, I would be hesitant to, you know, like disparage, I guess the, the connection because it does, I, I guess if I had had that when I was young, you know, maybe that would have been like very enlightening and helpful for me. Um, but I, yeah, I definitely, am, I don't share too much. So I feel like I, and I don't think people are counting on me for that. I think other people are in more precarious positions. So yeah, I feel, I feel all right about it. Um. Lewis and I were talking um, this morning a bit, too, about um, the recent album, um, Path of Wellness. And we were also talking about um, The Center Won't Hold. And what's interesting to me is um, 
we were talking about this era where I think the sort of female rock musicians go through this era where, you know, critics sort of are angry when they go too much in a pop vein, you know, like the album you worked on with St. Vincent. And it's weird for us as gay men uh, who love female rock musicians, but also tend to love those kinds of albums. You know, we were talking about Liz Fair's second album. We were talking about Beautiful Garbage. And mm. so for this album... Liz Fair's fourth sorry, album, for the record, fourth, moving fourth, on. Yes. 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 Uh, and for, you know, The Center Won't Hold, I really enjoy that album. Do you have a different relationship with that album now that you've made Path of Wellness? Uh, or do you still sort of feel the same way about it? I love The Center Won't Hold. And thank you, Ira. <laughs> I feel like... Um, <laughs> yeah, it's... It's interesting. I, I no, I'm very proud of that record. And I also loved collaborating with, with Annie, with St. Vincent on it. You know, mm -hmm. I think um, I was really confounded in, in some ways by, uh, especially because I felt like we had moved past this sort of like, um, you know, where, where pop was kind of this lesser, like musical category, you know, to me, uh, pop has always been part of the the great like DNA of of most. I mean, you know, like even the great rock bands, like a lot of their songs are catchy. Like melody to me is is the kind of the key ingredient for for translating like feelings and also just for for lasting for being timeless. You know, and um, it it felt I was like maybe Slater Kinney is just we which sort of trapped in this like certain kind of like a Venn diagram of kind of didactic thinking, you know, it's like the nineties, which were much more like, you know, strident and kind of punishing in, in the, the conversation about like selling out when genre was still very like compartmentalized and there wasn't a lot of crossover, but, but I was like, Oh, haven't we sort of moved past that? But then I was like, Oh, well maybe we're still being kind of compared. Like we're like the, the context from which we come is like still defining like what we should do. But it felt very prescriptive, I guess, the response to it. But I, um, yeah, I, I like it. And I think with each album, we were always trying to do something a little different. And it wasn't um, a direction that we had landed upon. It was sort of just a, you know, a way of exploring those particular songs. And I think we wanted the sound to be both corrosive in in some ways and maximalist, which we hadn't really done, and also catchy so yeah I, re I really enjoyed it and um and path of wellness was not a reaction to that i think it just it was more mm -hmm. born of the insularity of the pandemic and writing under different circumstances and you know just a different musical vernacular but certainly not a like oh let's course correct away from that in fact i think we learned a lot from annie's production and her approach and and applied it you know i and uh so yeah, we felt like it was just adding more tools to the to the toolbox instead of like and just, you know, some kind of gross experiment gone awry. But, you know, <laughs> people will either decide that it was a, a good album or they won't. And that's fine. I think when you have 10 records, you can't expect everyone to be on board with all 10. Speaking of St. Vincent and this movie, something uh, that I found so fun watching uh, The Nowhere In is interpreting how much of your dynamic in real life like was on the screen because you're both at times playing extremely fictionalized versions of yourself. But then at sometimes I feel like I'm watching just a, an actual snapshot of your lives. And I was wondering what 
um, parts of your dynamic specific to the both of you were you interested in getting on the screen? Oh, that's a good question. I definitely that version of myself does feel a little more feckless than guileless um, and also maybe more manipulative than I, I actually am. And then, of course, Annie, <laughs> you know, she is I don't know if you guys have ever chatted with her, but, you know, she is like a very like sort of down home Texan in terms of her conversational style and, you know, very funny, a little more self-deprecating than, you know, she is on screen. But I think the part of it that felt like we wanted to, I guess, maintain or showcase some of our like true dynamic is just that like wrestling of ideas and, you know, kind of coming at things from different perspectives. And it might not be that polarized, but we certainly have an ongoing discourse, I think, about, you know, relatability, identity, how much to share, you know, what when an artist owes their fans. I think those kinds of conversations, we are real to us. Um, I think we, you know, we made them a little more um, like of a, a kind of either or polarity in this film. But I think that um, that is true. Uh, a lot of the other stuff just isn't real, but we did find ourselves descending into these roles where I, I would show up to set. And, you know, my character was fr a little frumpier, again, a little more fumbling. And Annie, you know, like she was getting clothes from like Gucci and Chanel and Saint Laurent and <laughs> like all my clothes for the film are from like Limited Express. Like my whole my, my character's budget for the film was probably like two hundred fifty dollars, and hers was like two hundred fifty thousand or something like that. Not really, but like the disparity. And so like we would both be like getting dressed, and then we would go into the makeup trailer, and she would just it was like these like birds like fluttering about her like putting on makeup, and they would just kind of look at. They would like look at me and be like, you're good. I'm like, really? Gosh, you haven't really haven't applied any makeup. They're like, no, but I think that's probably fine. <laughs> so that that started like almost affecting us more than just like even our own dynamic. Like I could feel like this sort of um, us heading in these like disparate, distinct directions. And it, it helped for the the film. And then when I was done, I was just like when we go to the rap party, I'm going to be so dressed up, you know, like that, which is <laughs> the cliche of every rap party. Like I don't just wear cargo pants, guys. I can also wear heels is like the MO of like every rap party. <laughs> anyway. Uh, to, uh, to ask one last question. Uh, you are, um, you've been on you did portlandia for years you know and um what about portland do you find that you still enjoy um <laughs> you know after you after you've you know had to sort of you know like mine it for comedy and you know sort of have it become part of your identity mm -hmm. well i mean certainly it's such a cheesy term but it does kind of feel like my spiritual home in that I just grew up in the Pacific Northwest and there's things about mm -hmm. the, the landscape and like the, the various, you know, greens, it's so verdant here and like the, the gray skies and all that, all that stuff, which is, I know not what you're asking about, but it is part of what I love about it. But I mm -hmm. think on a more just like day-to-day -day level, it's unwavering earnestness, you know, and you guys read about it in the paper. Like we, uh, to me, like, it's not, you know, just 
malignant or annoying, like, or just all these things that people ascribe, you know, to it, like, as they read these stories of, like, you know, there's a lot of tumultuousness here. And I think, you know, differing, like, factions, like, kind of warring right now. But it, the bottom line is, it's just, it is an earnest city. And I think it tries it really tries and it is in conversation with itself, which it can be stultifying, which can be really um, tiring, but can also, I think, bring about some, some good awareness, but it's, it's an interesting place. I do love it. And uh, yeah, it will always be one of my homes for sure. I visited once and I feel like Powell's bookstore, I felt like Belle walking through the Beauty and the Beast town. It was like, that's the only place I've been like, where I feel like, oh, people listen to podcasts, they recognize your voice, uh, and they want to talk to you. Yeah. Uh, it's not, you know, it's such a sweet town. Exactly. I mean, I think that is, it's an, that's the irrepressible part of, of Portland. And people are fans of minutia and niche things. And, <laughs> you know, and truly you probably are a rock star here, you know, and that's, I think the, like that kind of different way of looking at things, what they appreciate is, is a nice way to, to live and to be a part of. So yeah, come do your, do your rocks. You can do a podcast here in the Moda stadium where the Blazers play. You can do a live show here. We would love to. <laughs> I would love that. I mean, though, if I saw you in Portland, though, I mean, it'd be like seeing like Bjork and ice. It'd be like seeing the Statue of Liberty in New York. I'd be like, well, there it is. It's all it's it's all happening I right in front people, of me. The, the thing I know I about Portland. Look at me and say, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's a compliment every woman wants to hear. <laughs> those three yeah. little words yeah <laughs> um yeah it is that can be a little weird but I've, i think because i lived here before the show like there is kind of a there's a continuity and a seamlessness um but yeah maybe it is weird i i try to i try to just blend in you know baseball cap big sunglasses huge trench coat <laughs> like jessica alba going to the grocery store yes. <laughs> your muse yes uh well thank you so much for being here carrie it's lovely to talk to you both big fans and um yeah i just really appreciate it thank you oh thank you oh what a pleasure yeah, a real pleasure coming up next celebrity podcasts why are there so many Imagine bold, naturally aged Tillamook cheddar slices melting over a burger, eating thick-cut cheddar shreds straight from the bag. Ah, it's nice to dream about cheese for a bit. Tillamook cheddar, extraordinary dairy. After the announcement of Lindsay Lohan's forthcoming podcast made it evident that any celebrity who does not have a podcast currently will have one soon. We thought it'd be time to look at a corner of our own industry, the celebrity podcast. It's a dicey idea. I just don't trust celebrities to be candid, period. In order for it to be fascinating, they almost have to be ruining their career. So, yes, I feel like we only hear about a celebrity podcast when something salacious happens, you know? I mean, the um bethany's podcast uh went viral recently because 
she too wants to talk about trans people. Uh, <laughs> 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 so may, maybe that's the hot topic. Maybe that's what we need to do to really get keep it going viral. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> yeah, you know what? I don't I don't want them in the same bathroom as me. How about that? <laughs> oh. You, what you didn't see was the sassy neck movement he added to it. To really add gay, gay flavor to the transphobia. How about that, oh. honey? <laughs> <laughs> no, but it does seem that like every celebrity podcast at some point delves into like extremely strange stories from either the host or another celebrity friend that they have on. And they always make the news, which is why it seems like a new show is always being announced. Um, like Lindsay's or, you know, like Ellen Pompeo has one. I talked about it last week when she was sharing weird stories about fighting with Denzel Washington on set. You know, um, Oliver and Kate Hudson have one called Sibling Revelry. There's Dak Shepard's Armchair Expert, Anna Ferris, uh, Alec Baldwin. That's a good one. I enjoy Anna Ferris's quite a bit. Unqualified is very good. It's good. Alec Baldwin. Um, Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsey called Office Ladies. We know why that one's popular because people just can't get enough of The Office. I, I was going to say, I don't think there's a single TV show that I could listen to an entire podcast dedicated to. Even something like I, like I watch Jeopardy every day. I couldn't even do it for that, I don't think. Buffy, just, I could. There's too much shit going on. <laughs> I can, yeah. Yeah. Buffy? Yeah. Well, I've been, I've been on um, Buffering a podcast, um, you know, a uh, wonderful podcast. I've been on that one. I've been on Slayer Fest 98. Um, actually, I enjoy dipping in. You're right. I can't, I can't really listen every week because mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm like just listening because, because I feel like podcasts about TV shows, re- they recap the shows and you get into them and it's fun when there's like a certain fun guest or like if I'm having a conversation, but most of the time, you know, I just, I just let the girls do it, you know? Um, I mean, there are people who really love these types of podcasts. Again, I am not one of them um, for the most part, mainly because I don't care about these folks or these shows. (laughs) Like, I don't, like, I will say the Michelle Obama podcast was was really good, particularly mm-hmm. the episodes when she's, like, talking with her girlfriends and, you know, she slips into her LaVon, Michelle LaVon Robinson. Um, so I like that energy. But, like, the majority of these, it's just, like, who really wants to hear Prince Harry and Meghan Markle? Do you really? <laughs> well, certainly not Kate. <laughs> I would love a Pablo Lorraine movie just about Kate. As in, nothing dramatic even has to happen in her life. I just want to see her walking around a beautiful home or something, you know, looking a little stricken and hearing the news about Meghan Markle and maybe not even reacting. You want that to be the third installment in his um, Women Running Around a House? Uh, <laughs> I think I, maybe I said it on here that I wanted to be Princess Peach. <laughs> oh, that'd be fun. <laughs> also, I love characterizing these as women running around a house movie, like it's Mother or What Lies Beneath or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, like, like Bill Gates and Rashida Jones ask big questions. That's a podcast that exists, Ted, uh, for five episodes. So um, mm. I guess they asked all of them. 
<laughs> the interesting thing is the thing, interesting thing about podcasts is it's weird to complain that there are too many of them though because they don't take up actual airspace like a, a part of me is like still using the brain of like network television where mm. it's like oh mm. if there's too much of this there's less of something else but unfortunately the limit does not exist to reference your friend Lindsay lohan you just said earlier but by the way she is my talk friend about, she is my can friend we just talk, you are right, my friend Lindsay lohan is come on keep it girl my good friends, my good sis. Okay, now this is up to Lindsay to answer. Why are people so fascinated with her still? I'm sorry, the amount of chances we have given the girl to not just one, do right, but to be interesting. Like, like she danced one time and then gays like wouldn't shut the fuck up about that for four years. Boring. I'm sorry. I don't like mess. Okay, well, now she's not going to come on the she's podcast. She's not coming at all, honey. It th- 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 takes a fucking lot, Louis. <laughs> it's like the Paris Hilton people. What? Like, nothing is there. What are we talking about? Yeah. Uh, well, you know. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Did I sabotage our big ratings opportunity? <laughs> Me talking about networks shit again. Oh, no. We want a 3.1 or whatever. Um, you know, there's also, like, I feel like when celebrities start a podcast, too, they, they often, like I said, the Bill Gates and Rashida Jones ones, um, they can also just sort of, like, vanish because yeah. the celebrity gets bored doing it. Right. There's no rules when it comes to celebrities. Dakota Johnson yes. had a podcast that had six episodes, and then it vanished. Although, that could have been Ellen. one of her many game of games is controlling the podcast industry there should be a thriller about being stuck in ellen's game of games like you you never end up outside you're still in the studio somehow it's like truman show Um, (laughs) i mean i'm sure when i'm sure when it shuts down when they have the final episode of ellen that means that like they just burn the studio with everyone in it (laughs) <laughs> oh, she's like Mrs. Danvers and, and Rebecca just watch, watching the Burbank studio crash yeah. uh, and I feel like a lot of these are also um, just sort of like promotional things you know I can't imagine like I Weigh with Jamila Jamil does much beyond get into you know the the topics of her like I Weigh um, venture you know right uh, you, uh, you know whose podcast I did like the couple times I listened to it was the Sean Hayes one with Jason Bateman. Uh, that's a fun one. Sean Hayes, I enjoy. Mm. Smartless is the name of that podcast. Yeah. The the problem with these podcasts though is if I sense any tenet of this whatsoever, and this is then I have to turn it off because what I want is that weird feeling of like we're all friends and we're shooting the shit, a- aka no one else is listening, mm-hmm. including your publicist. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, you know, but the publicist is always um, listening. Right. Oh, yeah. They're right on the Zoom. I can see some right now. Yeah. <laughs> That's my publicist in the waiting room. <laughs> uh, um, yes, there is that, too. You know, there's the there's the allure of a celebrity podcast. It's like you're going to get some salacious fun stories, you know, but I feel like you only get the salacious fun stories if, yeah, if the publicist isn't involved, if somebody says something they shouldn't say. It's always funny when that happens, though, too, because they're producers on these shows. Mm-hmm. Like, right. like, like the celebrity yeah. is, a celebrity is usually doing a, unless they're really into podcasting, you know, like um, Bitch Sesh, 
you know, um, which which I love. That's the, I think, best possible version of a celebrity podcast where you give them a topic that isn't about them. Yes. You know, like uh, like mm. like Adam Scott doing the uh, REM and YouTube podcast. Yes. Like, that's good. That yeah. we can do. That you know? is mm-hmm. usually, that means that like there's, there's a topic to talk about and then maybe you'll get some other fun stories, right? You know, but usually if you are just a celebrity making a podcast and you're being paid to do it, you know, like you're not doing it because you're hoping it's successful so you can get money. Like a lot of celebrities who announce them, they're being paid to have one because the allure is them. But then I feel like if you're being paid to have one, then you're not going to really, you know, do anything juicy. This is why the podcasts you should be listening to are the ones from like the, you know, the the C-level celebrities like Kim Whitley and Sherry Shepard have a podcast and it's mm. fucking hilarious. Right. Okay. Um, and so like we, we you need the people who aren't like self-involved to host the podcast because then you get all the good tea. You get the laughter. You get the the camaraderie that you kind of want to feel in your ears. Um, but like all of these other like legit legit celebrities and that's no shades of kim whitley and sherry shepherd because we stand those two icons um but all these other ones it's just like you're here to promote something else that you've got going on um and it's and it's easy right because you get to control the microphone you get to control the edit if you do happen to say something that you don't want nobody to 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 hear you can cut it out all of those types of things Mm -hmm. yeah we're we're just constantly cutting things from episodes to keep it <laughs> Ira gets cut out entirely sometimes just to save us. Uh, it's because I have a lot to say, okay, about queer people. <laughs> <laughs> See, we're going to cut that. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, after that past 20 minutes of you hearing what I just said about queer people, I mean, I mean, who can disagree with me? okay great don't cut that (laughs) Uh, (laughs) now someone's gonna actually think we cut something from the episode (laughs) right yeah (laughs) what did he say um yes the the ones that are also really interesting to me are the ones where like it's like a celebrity team up you know because then you imagine like you know like they're friends obviously and like but then they get together every week um which is which is must be such an interesting concept you know uh i guess it's just sort of like if you had a talk show or something together you know but i mean i haven't gotten over the fact that you know like through throughout forever what i was going on in life you know like i i see i see this man every week i have seen <laughs> him every week for for four years <laughs> there's nothing left to mine you know what if if the movie tea with the dames were a podcast that i would listen to with um maggie smith and judy dench and, and joan plow right and uh i mean those girls let loose uh, yeah. and, and also also it's like when you're that age they're like fuck it you know we'll talk about how Lawrence olivier was a big dick whatever you know yeah. so you know most of the people are dead um i would i would love that you know because i think also one of the best flavors of them is like when you have like a celebrity mixed with their friend or something who's not that famous mm-hmm. you know so mm-hmm. they can sort of yeah they bring it out of them out. yeah yeah mm-hmm. they feel more comfortable i'm sure that's what happens on kate and oliver hudson's podcast um which i don't <laughs> listen to uh <laughs> i i don't and and like it's 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 also not even a show like um i i don't care about my sibling that much 
<laughs> I have an essay question about Kate Hudson quickly. Okay. What is her what is her second best performance? Because you know what her best performance is, right? Almost famous. What would you say her second best performance is? Um as um Rachel Berry's teacher in New York on Glee. <laughs> Glee. <laughs> that might be it. Okay. Okay. Because Ryan's Ryan Murphy can do some stunt casting occasionally. She was fucking electric on That's Glee. That's one word for it. Yeah. All right. Well, what would you say it is, Miss Travell? No, we can go with it. We, we love Glee. We stay in Glee in this house. That's okay. <laughs> okay. Do you, do, you th- do you think her best performance was in Le Divorce? Oh, yes. Riveting. Okay. It just had my attention the entire time. <laughs> so when you said, in this house, we stay in Glee, do I live in like another house? Because <laughs> I would say... Uh, the answer is nine. You, you've you've been in many houses where we are playing clips from Glee. We and nine, which <laughs> I did not sign up for. Yeah. Um, you know, I I would I would say nine is nine is fucking great. Um, I she mean, is great in I nine. I mean, cinema italiano. Um, chefs a so. <laughs> what was that Chris Pratt Italian man yeah. <laughs> uh, I would also say you know what I mean there's a reason it's a classic you know uh, how to lose a guy in 10 days mm, okay that, that, that's fair too. sure okay she did what Sarah Jessica Parker could never do <laughs> you cannot be saying that one of my favorite TV stars of all time oh, I love her on TV I just mean like in her rom-coms in a rom-com, Sarah mm-hmm. is not it. Failure to launch? Come on. That was a tough one. That was when we thought we were done with, uh, what's his name? Matthew McConaughey, too. And then... Surprise, surprise. Of course, we, and then we here, gave in and, and then gave he, him an Oscar. Here he is in a movie that I could not finish on my plane. Uh, the Gentleman? Girl. What the fuck is that? The, the like, Guy Ritchie movie with like him and um, Colin Farrell, Charlie Hunnam... Uh, Michelle Dockery, Hugh Grant, Henry Golding, Jeremy Strong. This should be a cast for me. And I like Guy Ritchie films. Not this one. Also, so that's what we're doing with Michelle Dockery. Guys, we should be disappointed. <laughs> yeah. That was that was a funny pale lady. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> we, don't, we don't get too many Emily Mortimers around these parts anymore. <laughs> We're back. <laughs> Keep it. And we're back for our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. All right. What are we keeping this week? Travel, we'll let you go first. You're our guest of honor. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, My keep it this week, it's very specific. Last night, I went to the season two premiere of 20s. And as I was, you know, click clacking my way into the elevator at my apartment. um, Like Anne Marie. (laughs) I dropped my keys (laughs) in that little gap in between the the elevator. And it was like a scene out of a movie. It dropped right on top. It didn't move. It was great. As I go to pick it up, it slowly slides. No. Into no. <laughs> into the crux. Into the crux. And I am just like, 
I'm just like, what is, what is, first of all, why is that gap there? Okay. It seems completely unnecessary. And then two, my apartment complex is like, oh, okay, we'll, we'll get it out, you know, in like a day or two. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Mind you, <laughs> I, I thought that um, I would not be able to get into my apartment. Turns out for whatever reason, I left my balcony door unlocked. So it was fine. It was, it was cute. We just walked right on in. It was great. But it's just like, why is that gap there? And I, I need... I need a new elevator plan that does not have that gap. Um, that way I don't drop my keys because uh, it's, it's, it's kind of an inconvenience. I think it's because you're not British because in London, they always tell you to mind the gap. Mm. All right. Okay. Well, that, you know, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> you see how, like, a, sometimes on this podcast, a depression fills, fills the room. We don't know why or when it occurs, but. Usually um, after I use my, an accent. My, <laughs> I didn't want to say. You see, there's some implications going on there. My first day in LA, I was at a just a horrible office building where I uh, worked at the time and dropped my keys in the elevator shaft. And I just want to say, you are filled with so many questions about how an elevator works and where on earth your keys could possibly be. Exactly. What are they at the bottom of? Can people stand where my keys are? You're just like, <laughs> has anybody ever been where my keys got to? You're right. I don't understand anything about the um elevator universe that there is when you walk into one just a little space where if you're an itty bitty super thin wheat thin sized person you could just fall 500 <laughs> stories or whatever mm, well you know um it's probably just like rats and um rosalind shays from la law at the bottom of elevator <laughs> <laughs> still the best exit from a tv show so you, you, you cannot undersell how good that moment is the, there was a great moment on the recent season of the good fight where um Derek Linda left the show um mm. but there's a moment where he's walking towards an elevator and like they all almost fall into an open elevator shaft and they're like what the fuck is that there? Uh, <laughs> making you think that that's how he was going to exit uh, in an homage, but it did not happen. Um, mm. That's always terrified me, um, the bottom of an elevator shaft, like just just dropping something in there. Uh, not just there. Uh, I was just in New York. Like, I'm, I'm always worried that, like, when I'm holding my phone, like, am I going to drop it in a sewer grate? It just feels like mm -hmm. if something drops in one of those places, you're not getting it back. Imagine exactly. crawling into a sewer grate in New York to get your phone. <laughs> Elevators should be a safe place to have bottle episodes of sitcoms where you reflect upon all of your past adventures. That's what they're there for. Mm -hmm. Or you have affairs. Yes. That's oh, yes. Well, and so to dramas like trapped in an elevator means you're having sex. So Right. Fatal, fatal attraction. You're learning just how high Glenn Close can get her knee. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know the good wife bringing that up again one of the hottest scenes ever in an elevator so maybe I who was that elevators. was it josh charles it was josh charles and it was uh when you said hot that's where my mind went yeah yeah so it was josh charles and juliana margulies so um like end of season one it was you know it's very it was very sexy so we love we love elevators in this house we stand elevators <laughs> just not the gap Right. But. Just not the gap. <laughs> specifically the gap. Yeah. Get your elevator some Invisalign. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> get rid of that gap. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Lewis, what's your keep it this week? Um, I'm sorry to have already brought up Jeopardy this episode because I'm going there again. Uh, my keep it is to the online Jeopardy fandom for accusing Matt Amodio, who is the recent 38-time champion who is on his way to Ken Jennings' record of 74, seemingly without any obstacles in his way. This is somebody who won in a landslide every single day. And then one day, he was winning in the first round, and then suddenly it was like he didn't know how to work the buzzer as much. He had like five incorrect responses, which is completely unusual for him. And lots of people have accused him of taking a dive, or the producer, Michael Davies, who just took the reins this week officially, of telling him to take a dive. If you know anything about game shows, you know rigging one is one of the is so impossible. There are people on set working with every single decision to make sure everything is legit because it's a, a fraught situation involving real money. So taking a dive is just basically impossible in this situation or certainly encouraging someone to take a dive is impossible. And also, it's just possible you can have an off day with the buzzer. There's something about Jeopardy where it feels... It, someone like Matt Amodio makes you feel like, oh, once you get the rhythm of it, you never lose it. But honestly, once one contestant is better than you on the buzzer two or three times in a row, it can mess with your mm -hmm. head. And I think that's what happened. He seemed very discombobulated up at the podium, which, again, based on how awesome a contestant he is, was strange to see. But, guys, I mean, I've been on three game shows myself. There are so many people standing around making sure the game is legitimate, particularly one as esteemed as Jeopardy. So stop, stop listening to people online who pretend they know all about the ins and outs of Merv Griffin's gaming universe. You know, I was asked to take a dive on next. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was supposed to say something wacky as soon as I got off the bus. They, you, they told you to throw yourself under the tires? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Anna Karenina up next. Uh, <laughs> I listened to a Nets podcast. Would you just about having been there if there was yeah. if it was just about people discussing like particularly on the gay episodes mm -hmm. where they would just make out in the bus and mm -hmm. ignore the game. Some of the most subversive television of the 2000s. <laughs> I did. I did see an interview or so, I did see someone on Reddit had mentioned that they were on next. And they said that the scam was that like like when they flew them all there to like shoot um, one, they like get them drunk in the um bus they're encouraged to like drink etc uh they, the, one of them said that a producer was like i can't encourage you to drink but you know there is a bottle of vodka over there that you absolutely should not touch <laughs> Good and, Lord. and um also that standards like, and practices save us also that they're flown there um for the show um, and so like there is no second date which which is why that person was like, it's stupid to take the date over the money at the end because there is no second date. Pathetic. Yeah. MTV. Imagine MTV lying to us in the 2000s. I'm, I'm shook. <laughs> <laughs> Next was also the cruelest of them, too. People would just be vicious to somebody's face as soon as they appeared. Yeah. But then that person's also sort of like, you know, like um, you're, you're with those people all day, you know, and like. Some of them just cut you for the show stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, I do think you're hot, you know, but I got to cut you, you know, because it's funny. Anyway. <laughs> <sighs> Ira, what's your keep it? <laughs> you know what? My keep it this week is I'm going to do a little, I'm going to do a little cosplaying. I'm going to do okay. a preemptive keep it to Lewis saying keep it to 
the new trailer for Scream. Oh, uh, you know what? I kind of like the new trailer for Scream. It's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> you thought I was going to hate it? You usually hate trailers. Famously, you hate trailers on this show. <laughs> well, they're, 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 they're here to fool us, you know? Like, all trailers are good, but all movies aren't. So, who's the dummy here? Probably you. When a trailer's bad, that usually means there's, there's no saving that film. Uh, no. But the new trailer for Scream has dropped. And actually, you know what? I will say a brief keep it to the fact that it's just called Scream. Yeah, yeah just it's, it's just Scream like when the, the new Halloween was called Halloween. It's like no, 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 no. You don't get to erase it that hard. <laughs> like I still remember that movie. Right yeah. and now, it's just going to be like Scream. Like fans are going to have to say Scream, Scream Two, Scream Three, Scream Four, Scream Twenty Twenty One. And almost every letter in the word scream could have been replaced with a five. Yeah. So stop pretending there was an Apple opportunity. Yeah. Scrify them. <laughs> <laughs> looking like an Elon Musk kid name. Yeah. Uh, but no, I, I, I'm actually looking forward to the new scream. Uh, maybe it's to keep it up for me because the trailer actually, it looks entertaining. Uh, although I'm, I'm hoping that, I'm hoping we get a little something fresh, you know? I mean, because the front, from the looks of the trailer, you know, it's very much, you know, Sydney hunting down this killer who's after people. And I'm like, well, if that's the case, then I need her to be a little bit better at it. Right. Okay. Uh, like, because she seems to go and try and find out who the killer is. And then she never finds out until a final act bloodbath where she's been gathered with all of her friends and shocked by who the killer is. Like, girl, maybe you're, maybe you weren't like taking your detective classes. Right. No, I can already picture her like trembling in a in a denim top while somebody explains the entire reason they killed everybody she knows again. <laughs> Not super in need of that. The, but you're right. Like while it was the, good, you, part of the, the mask, you know, yeah. it's like I want one point where they take it off and she's like, yeah, bitch, we knew it was you <laughs> like an hour ago. <laughs> who is your guest for veteran who bites the dust? Because we have Nev Campbell in it. Courtney Cox, mm. David Arquette. He needs to go. Um, I don't know if anybody like they. He I don't think to, they brought back to, Parker needs, Posey, which is go. a crime against humanity. He needs to go. Well, she's dead. <laughs> I, just pretend she was. <laughs> <laughs> worst part of uh, worst part of Screen Three. I won't drag Screen Three because I like it, but the worst part was Parker Posey's death. She should have lived. Uh, and Dewey has should have died many times. So I think David Arquette, I think David Arquette should go. But I think one of those three veterans has to die for there to be any stakes in this film. I need kill there to all. be stakes. There Why were not no kill stakes. Them all? Yeah, there were no stakes mm. in four. I enjoy four, but there's no real stakes in mm. that film. Killing all of them would be a kind of cool move. That's how you shake I'm the table I, just a little bit. Yeah, yeah, shake because that that's table. actually not been done in a, in a horror movie. Like truly eliminating everybody. I mean, I guess Jamie Lee Curtis has been killed because then they'll just pretend it didn't happen and remake it again with all the same people. <laughs> yeah, they did it with Nightmare on Elm Street. Like when, like I feel like that's why I love Dream Warriors so much. Like Nancy dying in that film feels poetic, you know, and it feels like it's sending people off. The Nightmare on Elm Street movies tend to do that. They like the final girl will survive through like the next film or something, and then they'll die. Like Patricia Arquette was killed in the the next one, um, the Dream Master. Oh no! Wait, is Nancy Heather Langenkamp? Yes, the, she, the main she's girl? back okay. in the third film. Uh, have you seen Dream Warriors? 
No. I think that is that the one where it's like every fucking BuzzFeed horror gay is like the queerest movie you never no, knew. No, that's queer. that's like, two. Shut up. That's two. No, it wasn't. I bet it's bad. <laughs> well, no, that yeah. was that was Freddy. That was a Nightmare on Elm Street two. Freddy's Revenge, and that one actually is f- f- fucking faggoty. <laughs> like all right like freddy well, krueger is freddy this is the, that one tries to switch it up by like freddy krueger tries to possess someone and then come back into the real world and he possesses this guy who's like played by an actor who's gay uh and it's just sort of like he's he's right, walking around being yeah. like he's inside me you know and like he has like a crush on his um best friend and like they follow the basketball coach uh who's like abusive to like this leather bar it's a very game film but the third one is actually quite iconic, and it's set at a mental hospital um, where Freddie's like preying on these kids. And Heather Langenkamp, Nancy, shows up um, as a doctor who specializes in what's going on, uh, a therapist, um, and so she tries to help them. Uh, that one has um, Lawrence Fishburne in it. Patricia oh. Lawrence Fishburne, Patricia Arquette uh, is one of the leads. So. Um, Dream Warriors is where it's at. Also, an iconic soundtrack. So, um, should see I believe that. you for now. I've just been so let down by all these movies that are supposedly like pseudo queer classics or whatever. And then it turns out, you know, <laughs> no. like Thor Ragnarok or something is a queer classic. If you look at it a certain way, it's like, no, it's not. Don't tell me what to think. <laughs> 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 Uh, the only queer classic for me has to have um, Jim Carrey in it. Okay. I mean, oh, okay. I love you, Philip Morris. I thought it was that movie. I thought that was. No, I'm talking about movie. The Mask. <laughs> <laughs> queer, cl- queer classic. Okay. When he's saying somebody stop me, he means someone stop me from being heterosexual. Right. <laughs> I love this text you've conferred upon the film. The mask is a metaphor for the closet. Yeah. And, and, you know, heteronormative masculine behavior. No, Ace Ventura, het detective. Yes. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, the movie looks fun, even though I guess all the adorations of these films are really turning into like Halloween kills now. Um, vibes where like these final girls from like a long standing horror, f- horror franchise are now just like come and get me mm. <laughs> and then they've got all the weapons you know it's giving Terminator <laughs> what about numb and number to gender norms what about Bruce La Bruce Almighty see these are the gay films we wanted from him <laughs> I think that's the end of our show this week <laughs> <laughs> Thank when you. nature calls you to be gay. Woo, thank wow. you to Carrie Brownstein for joining us. Thank you to Travel. Thank you. Thank you to anyone who is still listening. <laughs> <laughs> the majestic nature of being gay. All right. I think I'm done with all this credit. Right, we thought we'd last for 200 more. 201st episode is the last one. <laughs> now we're canceled. <laughs> Keep is going to be taken over by Jack A and um, probably just Jack A. Probably just Jack A. Yeah, she do all three parts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Actually, before you all go, cat your own. Which celebrity do you want a podcast from? I want Angelina Jolie. In the wild, 
every country she's going to to help people. I want her interviewing the people in this country. I want her talking about the activism she does. And then I want her talking, like sprinkling in bits of like her past relationships. Oh, well, this is mm. a basic response. I think I want Jane Fonda because it would inevitably be about, you know, climate change, the thing she's obsessed with now. However, you get Jane Fonda going about the 70s or whatever, and she's like, you know what? I don't know what the hell happened to John Voight. Like, you will find out some dirt from her. <laughs> the way that you said, um, the way that you said climate change <laughs> it made it seem like you hate Miss Greta. <laughs> It's just what she's currently talking about the most. You're like, what are you going to talk about? A movie, bitch. (laughs) Monster-in-law 2. We need it. Okay? Yeah, right. But it'll just be called Monster-in-law. Monster-in-law Dream Warriors. (laughs) Travel. I'm going to go with uh, Dionne Warwick. I would love a Dion. I want I want her loose. I want her talking about calling people hussies back in the day. I feel mm-hmm. like it would give us all of the energy we need. Well, let me tell you something. I saw Dion Warwick in concert last weekend. Oh wow. And and she throws down the dialogue. She will scold you in the audience and literally wag a finger because <laughs> she is like traditional uh anti behavior, mm-hmm. if you will. And uh, she was really making me laugh. She also sounded good. I guess she had vocal cord surgery a couple of years ago, so you could hear her sort of recalibrating her voice, but mm-hmm. sounded good. All right. That, that makes me think I would want a Patty Lupone podcast. Mm. Oh, my God. Look out. The people, Look she, the out. people she dragged. <laughs> <laughs> the Madonna chapter alone would be There'd be 10 like, episodes. Vicious. Yeah. <laughs> She'd be like, all right, I finally watched Evita. i just watched evita for the first time in 20 years by the way we're going on too long i know it was literally is a full-length music video there's almost no scenes in it you're just going from cut to cut to cut to cut to cut like madonna doesn't even get to give a performance because you're you feel like you're watching a movie length music video yeah i mean if you want a real madonna performance you need to be at the Red Rooster in Harlem, where I was last this last week. Oh, I saw those pictures. Yeah. What, marching through the streets with her, like the end of Hairspray? <laughs> <laughs> Doing like a prayer. <laughs> That's how you get people to the streets of Harlem to march. Okay, Black Lives Matter. <laughs> you need Madonna. <laughs> it was a, an equal mix of surreal and insane. Uh, right. And that's all that's I about. Yeah. Which is which is how we describe Madonna these days. So, oh yeah, I saw Madame X. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we're really done this time. <laughs> we will see you next week. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Caroline Reston. And our associate producer is Brian Semmel. Our executive producer is Ira Madison III. That I, Louis Fertel, do a good job too. Our audio engineers are Charlotte Landis and Kyle Seglin. And the show is mixed and edited by Charlotte Landis. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroot, Nar Malconian, and Milo Kim for production support every week. Long days and no drumstick make for short fuses. And this fateful Monday, my fuse was as stubby and hungry as they come. Where are the drumstick vanilla cones? Take it easy, Sonny. Where are the drumstick vanilla cones, please? Yes! 
sweet, creamy, crunchy, crispy, decadent deliciousness. <clears throat> Sir, I can ring you up. In my preoccupation with scoring a drumstick, I had forgotten my wallet. Uh, do you offer buy now, pay later? Another day, another drumstick. <laughs>